Would you pray with me? Father, you are amazing. You are satisfying. You have more than enough. And we pray that while we explore your word, you would be looking on us graciously and with a smiling face and feed us um, in our hearts. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, I'm so glad to be with you this morning. I'm glad we could be together and contemplate this amazing story. This is actually a special morning uh, for me because uh, Father Eric was just about three days ago in this very spot that we're reading about, and he is at this very moment enjoying dinner with my very best friend, Ofer Amitai, a Jewish believer in Jesus who is a leader of a congregation outside of Jerusalem. And it's delightful for me to think that I am sharing fellowship with you here while he's sharing fellowship with Ofer there. Some of you have met Ofer. He's spoken here before. And um, on Monday, tomorrow, um, Father Eric and Bishop Stewart and many other believers from all over the world will be gathering in Jerusalem for the 10th anniversary of GAFCON, the Global Anglican Future Conference, which is the Anglican gathering uh, that authorized the development of our Anglican province in North America. And so our presence here is a result of their presence there. And I pray that um, God will do something amazing during their time of gathering, and I pray that you also will get uh, familiar with them, look them up, Google GAFCON, and it'll take you to all the events there. Um, so it's kind of impressive to me to think that there are Anglicans all over the world right now praying for their bishops and priests who are gathered there to enact the spirit-filled business of the Anglican Church. Um, and we look forward to having Father Eric return and share more about that. So um, it's a special morning in a lot of ways. Um, what makes it most special of all, of course, is Jesus. Jesus makes it the most special. Jesus changes everything. He did 2,000 years ago. He is still now changing everything. And I love Jesus, and I want you to love Jesus this morning because the key theme of our sermon this morning is that Jesus satisfies. Um, God, in his glorious wisdom, has called us into a faith that is not just an intellectual assent to a philosophical system. It's actually a faith that feeds us. It's a big difference. I want you to feast on Jesus. It's an odd thing to say of someone we should feast on him, but that's the very thing that Jesus himself will say later on in this chapter six, which is so scandalous that some people are like, that's gross, we're leaving you now, you're crazy. And yet for people who are hungry, for people who are in need, they were satisfied. And we, to this day, are still satisfied with Jesus. This chapter six is so amazing that we're gonna spend four weeks in it. It's a big chapter, right? There's a lot of verses in it. 
but it is so central and so beautiful and so amazing that we're gonna spend some time in here. And so I just wanna set it up just a little bit. This, of course, is the bread chapter. Uh, Jesus um, performs this amazing miracle of multiplying the loaves, and then we'll go on to teach about the significance of that event uh, during the next few discourses with the Jewish people that follow after it. And you will note uh, that whenever Jesus speaks, because he's speaking with the voice of eternity, there's so much richness. And because Jesus was there even before the foundation of the world and was present with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit, as the Jewish people were learning about who is God, you'll find that almost whenever Jesus speaks, you'll hear echoes of notes that were sounded before. Jesus almost never says anything new with respect to the unfolding revelation of God. Here's what I mean by that. Jesus says lots of new things about himself, but God is the same today, yesterday, and forever. If I could mix it up a little bit that way. And so when Jesus speaks, if you know the Bible well, you'll be like, ah, I heard that note before. And now these notes are starting to weave together into a beautiful symphony of the glorious magnificence of God. And so you'll find, if you have your Bibles, I encourage you to open them, you can see in chapter five, we leave off with these words. Jesus says to those who are challenging them, if you believed in Moses, you would believe also in me. That's significant because if you know the Bible story at all, you may remember Moses was one of the most important figures of the Old Testament. Moses was the leader that it, God calls to lead the Jewish people out of slavery from Egypt. Do you remember that? And the waters part, and the Jewish people go through. It's an amazing story. It's what the, the book of Exodus describes. They exit Israel, uh, Egypt, and they exit slavery. And do you remember what happened? The Jewish people go out into the wilderness, and how do they survive? They survive with miraculous bread. Do you remember what that's called? Manna. Manna. And manna is, a Hebrew word means portion. Every day, there would be just enough manna to feed the people. And then on Fridays, because you're supposed to rest on the Sabbath, which is the following day, there would be two portions. It's an amazing story. So if you're a Jewish person, of course, you are telling this story all the time. I mean, if I just said among us, you know, jingle bells, everybody would be thinking Christmas, all of my traditions, everything. I wouldn't have to say anything else but that, and everybody would be like, Christmas would fill your head, all right? That's kind of what it's like when you're a liturgical people, when you're a storytelling people. You can say something really simple that unpacks a great deal more meaning I can say, jingle bells, you're thinking about all the Christmases that you can think of, all right? You can sing all the songs, you think about all the, pre you know, you think about all of Christmas. See, I said one little phrase, and in your mind, and in your heart, and in your feelings, a whole lot of things happen. I don't even have to say the words, I can just start to hum them, and you'll start to feel Christmassy. 
because you live in a culture that tells that story all the time. If you're a Jewish person, you're telling these stories all the time, all the time. That's why John says it was Passover. If you're a Jewish person, that's like saying jingle bells. All of a sudden, your heart and your mind and even your emotions start to align with all of the traditions that you celebrated all the way along with your family and your community around Passover. So John says, it was Passover. And all the people reading the story would be like, uh, you know, they start singing the Passover songs. Okay, that's an important detail. That's why in chapter 5, we leave off the story and Jesus alludes to Moses. Now we hear it's Passover and all of a sudden the readers of the story are like, okay, now, now what happens? There's an amazing story about miraculous bread. Now, if you're singing the song of Moses all the time, Moses, the leader of Israel who took you out of bondage and where you experienced in the desert places of Sinai the miraculous bread of God, what do you start to do? You're like, you're putting two and two together. You're like, oh, hmm. Moses, miraculous bread. This guy, Yeshua, multiplying the loaves. Do you see how all of a sudden... Jesus is doing things that are starting to sound these notes that make the Jewish people around him start to get excited, curious, hopeful. <clears throat> and there's so much beauty that Jesus starts to pull in. This is a very special time in Israel's life when they're wandering in the desert. It's hard. It's hard to be in the desert. Very difficult. But here's what God said about that time through the prophet Jeremiah. This is God speaking through the prophet. He said, I remember, Israel, I remember the devotion of your youth. He calls it youth because in some ways the Jewish people were born in that amazing moment of redemption. God says, I remember the devotion of your youth, your love as a bride how you followed me in the wilderness in a land not sown. Israel was holy to the Lord, the first fruits of his harvest. It's such a beautiful expression. And you can imagine that when Jesus now on the mount, on the shore of the Sea of Galilee where the villages were, there's a, a large space and the people were there, and it says Jesus lifted up his eyes and he saw them. And you can imagine that this isn't just a small fact of Jesus noticing something. Oh, check. No, when Jesus sees, he's seeing with the eyes of heaven. When he sees those 5,000 and more, because that was just the men, there were women and children, and he sees them and they're needy and they're sick and they're wounded and they're distressed and they're discouraged and they're hungry. He sees them with the eyes of heaven as though they were in the wilderness and he's saying, I remember your love as a bride. You were holy. You were my first fruits, my chosen ones. God says of Israel, they were the apple of my eye. Do you know that came from the Bible, that expression? The apple of my eye? That's Israel in the eye of God. 
And when Jesus looked up and he saw the crowd of distressed people, what he saw were the apple of God's eye, of his own eye. And in the Gospel of Matthew where he tells this story, it says Jesus had compassion on them. It's such a beautiful thing happening here. God is now moving in the way God always did. You know, people talk about, oh, the God of the Old Testament. Don't ever say that. God of the Old Testament, God of the New Testament. The God of the Old Testament is beautiful. Because Jesus now, as we've remembered from previous passages we read in John, is doing what he sees his Father doing. God, beholding the apple of his eye, gives them miraculous food in their time of need. And Jesus the Son, doing what his Father is doing, sees the people needy, and he says, they are the apple of my eye. I am going to feed them. And how he does it is so amazing. Jesus now, instead of just kind of fixing the problem, we've said this before, you may have remembered I've said this before, Jesus doesn't, does, doesn't just fix problems. And you'll see over and over again, Jesus will come up against a, a problem for the people, not his own problem, and he'll ask a question that seems to be kind of a problem-solution type question. So he asked Philip, who's from around this area, by the way. Uh, Philip's from Bethsaida, is up in the north. So he, it's natural that he asked Philip, hey, where can you buy, where, you know, where do you get a hamburger around here? And uh, Philip would know something like that because he's from there. And John wants to put a little assertion in that. It's not because Jesus didn't know where to get hamburgers, not cheeseburgers, by the way. That wouldn't be kosher. Um, uh, and Philip doesn't even say where you get stuff like that. He just says, well, I, there, we just don't have enough money. Now, if Jesus were just a problem solver, he'd just say, well, I got this donor, right? He'll pay for this. But that's not what this is about, is it? This isn't about Jesus solving problems. Now, we often act that way in our life of faith because the problems are hard. These aren't just little problems. I mean, the crowds around him were in distress. This is not a happy group. This isn't the Sunday school picnic, right, on the Sea of Galilee, and Jesus brings a special dish. This is distressed people who are following him because he can help them. And so the, we, I don't want to downplay the distress of them or of us, the things that were challenging. For many of us, this has been a bad week. I know that. And Jesus isn't saying that doesn't matter. But he's not just simply saying, I'm going to solve this problem for you. It's much better and this is the beautiful thing about the way Jesus acts. He says to his disciples, hey, where do you get a burger around here? And disciple number one says, we just don't even have the money. We just, we don't have it. So I got nothing for you. The other disciple says, well, there's this kid that's got poor person's food. All right, this isn't even good wheat bread. This is barley bread, which is even of a worse quality. And he's got these fishes. Now, this is like dried fish. This is like 
this is not, you know, this is not the feast of, of the wealthy. This is a very poor meal, and, and it's not enough anyway. I mean, it's embarrassing to even mention that we have this. So the point is, is that this, this kind of, this kind of sets in contrast the, the, just the desperate need. And Jesus wants to show us now that when he solves problems, he's not just solving a problem, he's moving in to the very center of the issue. Jesus is stepping forth now into a, a role that only he can play, and he wants to say to the people, look, I'm not only gonna solve your problem, I'm gonna establish myself as meeting the even deeper need that you have. It's a need that you don't even know you have. And that need is very significant. That's why Jesus doesn't just solve the problem, because if he did, there wouldn't be satisfaction, there wouldn't be salvation, there wouldn't be restoration, there wouldn't be all the things that happen here if we pay attention. So what does Jesus do? First of all, he sees. Verse five, I've mentioned this already. Jesus sees. He lifts up his eyes and he sees the crowd and he has compassion. And he sees you. Because as I said, Jesus isn't just seeing things like he's calculating a challenge. He's seeing with the eyes of heaven. He's seeing you as the apple of God's eye. He's seeing you as you are in ways that you can't even see yourself, and he's seeing you in ways that you will be because he's the savior and restorer. He sees you at your level of need. He sees even past the problem verse 5, Jesus sees you. And do you know that? Do you know that Jesus sees you? That you're not somehow caught in a blind speck in his eye? You know, that somehow the eyes of heaven swept over the earth and they just didn't notice you. But you are noticed. And you are seen. We don't have the name of a single person in that crowd of five, seven, ten thousand 10,000 people. We don't know anything about them but he saw them, and each one had enough. Now think about that. Jesus saw them, but each one had enough. The next thing that Jesus does is he tests. This is a hard part. Jesus tests, verse six. Jesus tests in the sense of he puts the disciples in a context where Jesus' nature could be revealed. Let me say that again. Jesus isn't quizzing them. All right, I I can see the distinction of these words. He's not quizzing them, and Jesus isn't quizzing you. It's not a riddle that if you say the magic word, you get to pass, go, or what, you know, I'm sorry, that doesn't make any sense, but you know what I mean. <laughs> he tests in this way. You know, you, you can ask Jesus, look, why can't you just give us the answer? You know, eventually the disciples, they just act, can you just speak plainly? You know, and we have that prayer so often to God. Why don't you make this easier? I am doing everything I can, and yet you still give me these riddles, and you're silent, and I don't know where you are. I'm not sure you're there. Why can't you just give us the answer? Why does it have to be so hard? That is a difficulty. 
In fact, that's so common in terms of our life together. That's why we need to stick together because we need to be telling ourselves to each other, God has a plan. God tests because he wants us to not just engage in this problem solution model where we have a problem and he fixes us and then we go on our way and then we have a problem again and then we, we get to the godly vending machine to give us what we need. No, the test does just one thing. It allows Jesus to be Jesus. It allows him to move forward to do more than you could possibly have ever imagined. That's all. That Philip and Andrew couldn't, they would not have known. And Jesus' testing of them is just simply to unloose them from their self-confidence. It's to help them to express verbally the pressure that they are feeling. Because all of a sudden, they have to say with their mouth, uh, we don't have enough money. Um, all we got here is five loaves. Now, neither of the disciples would have known that had they not been forced to ask. They were just wandering around, following Jesus, waiting for something to happen. All of a sudden, Jesus says, hey, where, where, where can we get bread? And all of a sudden, Philip's got to answer that. And it exposes something. Look, I, we don't have enough here. I don't even know, what, what are we doing here? You know, Andrew, Andrew would have completely overlooked what was enough. He would never even known it was there if Jesus hadn't asked the question. And so Jesus is going to press on you a little bit, not because he's cruel or because he's trying to have fun at your expense, but because he's so merciful. He wants you to be in a position where you can receive, where you can see, where you can know. It's hard I don't think there's ever been a saint that's ever written anything about their spiritual journey that doesn't say this part is a hard part. But just know, friend, that if you're in a test, it's not because God is cruel, it's because he's merciful and you will receive the answer. It demonstrates that Jesus is saying, to, he's testing you because he wants to say, I'm not at the center yet. You don't see something yet. I'm still on the periphery here and I'm going to keep testing you until you let me come into the center until I'm in the middle of your life and you can feast on me and you can feed on me and be satisfied and you will see me work. And he keeps testing that way. That's what he does. Next thing he does is a beautiful thing is he accepts our gifts. That's what I mean. Jesus isn't trying to belittle you. Jesus knows that you have something to offer. He knows it's not enough. None of us have enough, ever. We will never, ever have enough. Paul says, all have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. If you want to know where you are, it's short. You've fallen short. Finish line is over there. You fell. All right? It's just better to know that <laughs> and not pretend you can try to get up and reach the finish line over and over and over and over again in your own strength and you'll just never find it there. It's so much simpler that Jesus comes to where you are. In fact, there is no finish line in that sense. Jesus is over there. He's coming to where you are and he accepts your gifts. He's not limited in any way. Do you see how different this is than you know, kind of people get confused. Have you ever heard of the, the expression health and wealth gospel? If I have faith, God will reward me. 
No. Paul says if you have faith to move mountains, but you don't have love, it means nothing. No, that's not what's going on here. This isn't believe and succeed. This is rather be really honest. All I got, five loaves and some dried fish. Honesty. Here's what I'm facing, Lord. Here's what I see. Here's what I have. I don't see enough. I don't have enough. But what I have, that's what I have for you. And Jesus will say, that's more than enough. Because he does love you. What do you have? What do you need? You may say, I've got nothing. Or all I have is this little bitty thing. And I I can't see how I can build on that. I, I lost so much. And what I have left, I'll ne- it'll never work. And Jesus says, no, that's true in your own limited point of view, but I'm testing you to let me come in there and take what you have and multiply it for you. He accepts our gifts. And then we'll see, let me see where I am in, the, uh, ver- I'm ver- in verse 10 now. He guides and instructs. He's not out of control. Jesus draws us into the process of experiencing, of experiencing his motion now. You see in verse 10, he'll say, disciples, have the people sit down. Now, that's a beautiful thing because all of a sudden, these passive, confused disciples are now acting on behalf of the generous Lord. They are now ministering in the very flow of God's miraculous provision. This isn't, hey, can you go run an errand for me? Jesus is saying to the disciples, I want you to be instruments of my overflowing provision. So you may be a disciple, and you may be thinking, I've got friends and family, I've got... I I am so overwhelmed by the burden of other people's need that I just can hardly think about it. It breaks my heart. My children, my parents, my friends. God willing, we're praying for each other in this way. And God is saying to you, I have enough. I actually want you to be involved. Now, if you're one of the crowd, you can be equally blessed because you're getting direction. Hey, sit down. You know, you can imagine somebody's like, thank God. (laughs) You know, that pastor was praying so long. You know, amen, you may be seated. When I was a kid, that was the greatest, you know. (laughs) You know, we had liturgical words, and I love them. You may be seated, you know. Every kid knew the benediction because you knew it was over. You knew, like, we're free. And now, by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, love God, the Father, and the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, rest and ride upon each of you now and forever. Amen. We could say it that fast, you know. You, you know, you'd sit on a day like this. We live near an airport. Our church was near an airport. And you'd be there, and the, the pastor, God bless him, he was an older man, preaching from the King James. And all of a sudden, you hear this thing. And you're like. You just felt like you were going to die. You know, it would just never end. So you can imagine these poor people, you know, and the disciples are like, hey, sit down. You may be seated. Yes, something's going to happen. 
God will give you direction. He will. And the simpler, the better. God doesn't often give us contractual language that nobody pays attention to. Yeah, I accept it, whatever. He'll say things or go. You know, trust, seek, ask, hope. You know, those are the kind of instructions that God will give you. Sit down. <laughs> That's my fatherly voice coming through that. I don't mean to project that onto Jesus. <laughs> now here, uh, I'm never going to make it through this, so <laughs> I'm going to... I'm going to come to the point here, uh, not the point, I'm going to come to something that I, I want to linger on just in my remaining time. Darn it. Um, he gives thanks. Now, I have read this parable I don't know how many times, and I read it this time, and the Lord just paused me here, and I have been so blessed by contemplating this. This is what I want to share with you in closing. Jesus gives thanks. Now, if you grow up in a Christian home, saying grace before the meal is just like the thing you got to get done before you get to the food, right? It, it ought not to be that way. Um, now, I'm not going to give us a sermon on giving thanks before the meal. I have something much more important to say, but I, I just want to say that for Jewish people, giving thanks before the meal is a deeply weighted thing. God blesses the earth in Genesis chapter 1 in its fruitfulness. And the word to bless and the word to thank are very similar in Scripture. I won't go into all of that, but blessing and thanksgiving are very closely held together. And that's why you'll see that in our liturgical Eucharistic prayer service. Blessing and thanksgiving are very close. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And so God looks out over the world and he blesses it and he says, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, and all of this is made for your provision. And so when the Jewish people pause before a meal, they say a prayer. I'll say it for you in Hebrew. I know it because everybody prays it all the time, and it's probably what Jesus prayed. It's that old. Baruch lechem min ha'aretz. Blessed are you, O Lord of the, or King of the universe, who brings forth bread from the earth. It's a short prayer. Isn't that wonderful? But it causes a Jewish prayer to connect with one of the most deeply important features of faith, which is that God creates and God provides and God restores. That's why bread is so basic and so important. Now, I got to thinking about what was happening when Jesus thanked God. I want you to envision this for a morning. It just blesses me tremendously. Jesus is standing in the midst of a, a needy crowd. It's hot. People are tired. They're frustrated. They're hoping that they can get to Jesus and that he'll bless them and heal them. And Jesus rises up in that crowd and he looks up and he takes to God, the Father, the brokenness, 
of each and every single individual, and he takes them up into God's throne room, and he says, blessed are you, O Lord, king of the universe, who brings forth bread from the earth. He thanks God for this crowd, and he takes them with him into heaven at that moment. Is that not beautiful? Do you know that's what our Eucharistic prayer is? Lift up your hearts, we say, right at the very beginning. Do you know what that's doing? We are ascending to God's right hand through the ascension of Jesus Christ, who as a man died and rose again and went up to be where his Father is so that he could take you with him. And I just see Jesus standing up in our midst and in the midst of your life and saying, thank God I'm taking all of this that you are and I'm taking it all up into God and I'm thanking him as only a Jewish person can thank from the very roots of the creation of the world. When God said, this is good, I bless this, and God is blessing you through Jesus Christ, who was blessing that crowd in that very moment. He himself, thanking God for that bread from the earth, would himself break because he is the bread of life. He himself is the bread for which he's thanking God. He himself is the bread that God the Father is offering so that we can feast on it and be satisfied. That's what's happening in this miracle. Jesus dividing himself. Jesus offering himself. Jesus taking you into himself, into God's own presence so that you could not just have a problem solved, but so that you could be satisfied at the very depth of who you are. Satisfaction of the heart. And that's what Jesus is doing when he blesses and thanks and breaks. This is such a blessing to the early church that when the early church read this account, they imported a lot of the themes of the story right into the Eucharistic prayer because how could they not see that in this miracle, Jesus himself is offering himself? And friend, I want to encourage you, friend, brother, sister, sheep, lamb, you belong to God. You are the apple of his eye. He sees you. He's feeding you. What's little and lacking in your life? Probably a lot. You can name it. I don't have this. I don't have, this thing didn't work. I'm afraid of this. We take that to him, and he looks at that little offering and that little circumstance, and he says, I bless this. I thank God for it. I myself am your satisfaction. I myself am testing you only for this purpose that I can move closer in and you can experience me even more as the one who heals, who forgives, 
who provides, who nourishes, who satisfies. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen.